to uh, quote those famous words of Charles Dickens and twist them a little bit. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. We are beginning today a three-week series in the prophet Habakkuk. He lived in the worst of times for people who honored God, who believed his word, and who desired to serve and obey him. Things were very bad in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. The elite rich, the one percenters, were using bribes to win lawsuits, to steal property, to force the poor people to work for them for menial wages and then even refuse to pay them, to rob the widows, to enslave the orphans. The priests who should have been doing something about this and the political leaders at best look the other way. And at worst, they joined in just as greedily and meanly as their rich patrons. Corruption flourished, and the average guy had no chance. Violence was common, and it wasn't safe to be out and about unless you had the kind of protection that only the rich people could afford. It was the worst of times. But to make matters worse... God was silent. The cries and the prayers of the righteous few seemed to fall on empty ears, and so life seemed very hopeless. You ever had a situation in your life where it seems like God is silent? You know, it could be a time at your work when the boss, just for some unknown reason, seems to take pleasure in picking on you. You cry out to God for relief. But God seems silent. Or maybe it's your health. Maybe even a chronic illness. A difficult time of life. And you cry out to God for healing. God seems silent. Maybe it's your family. A loved one. A brother, sister, son, daughter, mother, father. And maybe that person is doing things that that hurt you inside like a kick in the gut. You cry out to God. And God seems silent. That was the experience of the prophet Habakkuk. He was crying out to God about the things that were going on around him. And God was silent. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are called the Minor Prophets. Minor, not because they're less important than the major prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but they're just smaller books at the end of the Old Testament. The the Hebrews called them the Twelve. Let me give you just a little background to the minor prophets. Under King David and then his son, King Solomon, the Hebrew nation prospered greatly. It ruled over an incredible territory, which the Bible tells us stretched from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. Huge territory. And it was the best of times. It was an incredibly prosperous time. Listen to the to the words of uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 describe that time of King Solomon. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 
In our measure, that's 25 tons of gold. One year. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, each using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. That's 15 pounds of gold per shield. He made 300 shields of made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas, or about five pounds of gold on each shield. Those were the little ones. And he put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top on the throne of its rear and the arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. And twelve lions were standing there on the six steps, one side on, the, on one side and the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None of it was silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silvery, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, and so much year by year. That's pretty good times. Imagine that throne. Twelve steps, or six steps, twelve lions, one on each side of the steps, and then this throne, and it's all made of ivory, and it's all covered with gold. And then all the drinking vessels were of gold, and everything was gold, and they didn't bother with silver because it wasn't considered valuable. Because of gold. And then the death. Solomon came out after 40 years of his reign in about the year 931 B.C., about 900 years before Christ. And shortly after Solomon died, that kingdom was ripped in two by the foolishness and the wickedness of his son, Rehoboam. And things went downhill from there. The northern kingdom called Israel lasted about 200 years until the year 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and conquered them. The northern kingdom called Israel, they had a, a few good kings, men like Hezekiah and Josiah, and they lasted longer. But in the year 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and conquered them. And then 18 years later, Nebuchadnezzar came back and totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem and tore down the temple. And during that time, all that gold, the scripture tells us, was carried away. It was all gone. And how a nation can go from the best of times to the worst of times because of wickedness and disobedience to God's word and God's principles. Now, that's a brief quick overview of about 300 years of history from the time of David and Solomon to the time of what is called the exile in Babylon. And the minor prophets, for the most part, lived during that time and they prophesied, some of them to the northern kingdom and some of them to the southern kingdom, giving warnings that God's judgment would come 
for all this wickedness. And Habakkuk is one of the last of those prophets who prophesied to the southern kingdom shortly before the Babylonians came in 605 B.C. And Habakkuk was prophesying about all this wickedness that was going on that was leading to God's judgment that is about to come. So, with that brief introduction, would you please find in your Bible the little book of Habakkuk. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. There are 12 minor prophets. Their names are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, he's number 8 of the 12, the back of the Old Testament. They're not in any particular order. They're not in alphabetical order. They're not in chronological order. They're just... The twelve. See if you can find Habakkuk chapter 1. We are going to have a three-week series in Habakkuk. I obviously will be bringing the message this Sunday. Next Sunday, Joshua Cottrell will be bringing the, the message. And then the Sunday after that, Pastor Andy. So, Habakkuk has a lot to say about how to live during terrible times trials of life when God seems silent and the main idea this morning is this when God seems silent he is often doing more than you ever imagined when God seems silent he is often doing more than you ever imagined in the first four verses the perplexed prophet prays try saying that five times fast the perplexed prophet prays. Habakkuk begins by praying about this bad situation in which he finds himself living. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? Thou will not hear. I cry out to thee, violence. Thou dost not save. Why dost you make me see iniquity? Cause me to look on wickedness. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and tension arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. We hear there just some of the things that are making this the worst of times. He, he cries out about all the violence in society. In verse 2 and again in verse 3, injustice, all kinds of wickedness and strife and contention. And the, the law, he says, is never upheld. That is not talking about the civil law. That is talking about God's law. What the Hebrews called the Torah was being ignored. And the result, he says, is that justice is never upheld, verse 3, and justice is perverted. He's describing a situation in which the rich are using the justice system to oppress people and uh, rob people. So the rich get richer, and the vast majority, the poor, get poorer. Now, a lot of this could be today's newspaper, couldn't it? Wickedness, drive-by shootings, violence, strife, contention. And particularly, the law of God, the word of God, is ignored. But worst of all, God seems silent about it all. Did you see that in verse 2? How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? 
I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Habakkuk is crying out to God during this terrible time, and yet it seems to him like God doesn't even hear his prayer. Now, we know theologically that God sees and hears and understands everything. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it completely. A few verses later, the same psalm continues. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. See, God sees. God hears. God knows. God understands. And so when Habakkuk cries out, how long, O Lord, will I cry out and you will not hear? He's not saying that God can't hear or that God refuses to hear. He's saying, God, where are you? God, why are you silent during this, this horrible time of life? And again, I ask you, have you ever had one of those times in your life when it just seems like God is silent as you cry out to Him. Because this is part of human experience. And you know, Habakkuk's words also suggest that he's been praying about this for a long time. He would not say in verse 2, How long, O Lord, unless he'd already been pleading with God for some time. You know, sometimes we cry out to God We pray about things for a long time, and yet God seems silent. In the Daily Study Bible, commentator Peter Craigie writes this, The prophet is baffled by the discrepancy between theology on one hand and human experience on the other. That's right. We are sometimes baffled by the distinction between what we know to be true about God And what we experience. We know that God is good, loving, kind, caring. We know that He is our Heavenly Father. And yet sometimes we're baffled. Because God seems a long ways away. And He doesn't seem to hear our cries for help. But in those times when God seems silent, He is often doing more than we ever imagined. Because in verse 5, this silence of God is shattered as the silent God speaks. Now imagine this. Habakkuk, like you and I sometimes in life, has been praying about this for a long time. But suddenly in verse 5, God speaks to him out loud, directly. Let's see what God has to say. Verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That fierce 
an impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Well, two things are very clear here from God's word. First of all, he's doing something, even though Habakkuk hasn't seen it. You see those words, I am doing something in verse 5. And again in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The present tense there is very clear. God is doing something, Habakkuk, even right now, even though you haven't seen it. Now, if you happen to be reading the New International Version, verse 5 says, I'm going to do something. But both the New American Standard and the the New English Version say, I am doing something, and that is a better translation. God is not saying here, well, someday I'm going to wake up from my sleep and do something about this situation. No, that is not what God is saying. God is saying, I am doing something right now. And so, here's the first practical lesson for times of life when God seems silent. God is doing exactly what needs to be done. And God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, your presupposition that I am doing nothing is wrong. And if we ever presuppose that God is doing nothing, we are absolutely wrong. God is doing something. We just haven't seen it yet. The the second amazing thing here in God's answer is that God is doing something completely unexpected. Do you notice that in verse 5? He says, wonder and be astonished. He says, you wouldn't believe it if you were told. See, not only is is God doing things when he seems silent, he is often doing things completely different than we would have guessed or wanted or expected. It's very much like it says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts... Than your thoughts. God is doing something, even when we don't see it, and God is very often doing things very different than we would have guessed because He's God. And we are not. Now, the rest of verses 7 through 11 goes on to explain these Chaldeans and explain why Habakkuk will be so surprised. Now, Chaldeans, by the way, is just another name for Babylonians. But many of the same things which troubled Habakkuk, verses 1 to 4, are even magnified greater in the Chaldeans, verses 7 to 11. Look at some of the words. Verse 6. These ruthless and impetuous people. Verse 7. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They make their own rules. They make their own law. 
They ignore the law of God. Verse 10, they mock kings and scoff at rulers. Verse 11, they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Fierce, brutal, cruel, wicked warriors likened to ravenous wolves in verse 7 are also idolaters who worship their own strength. Their God is how powerful and strong and mighty their armies are. Now that leads to a second question from the perplexed prophet. God, how could you do this? That begins in verse 12. And Joshua will be explaining that to us next Sunday. But this Sunday, let's think about six practical lessons that we can learn from Habakkuk when God seems silent. Lesson number one. We've already said it. God is often doing things greater than we would have ever guessed or imagined. That's the present tense, verses six and seven, or verses five and six. I am doing something. I am raising up the Chaldeans. God never sleeps. God never slumbers. God is never taken by surprise. God is doing things even when he seems silent. Practical lesson number two. God is often doing things completely different than we would have guessed or expected because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways. Are not our thoughts. Practical lesson number three. History. The nations are completely under God's control. The, the fall of some nations, the rise of other nations, it's no, no surprise to God. In fact, He plans it. He does it. He raises them up at the appropriate time and He takes them down at the appropriate time. So we need never fear the nations. We need to never be troubled by the nations. Because as the prophet Isaiah says, they're just a drop in the bucket. Isaiah 40 verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Blink. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. You know, when we hear the news today, there's a lot about the nations. There's a lot of trouble in the Ukraine and Iraq and Syria and, and Afghanistan and Russia and all those places. But don't fear. God is in control of the nations. He raises up nations in His time and He takes them down in His time. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray about these situations, but we should never be concerned that God isn't in control. Because God is in control of the nations. You know, the prophet Daniel illustrates this principle as well as anywhere else in the Bible. The thing about Daniel is that Daniel was a young man living in Jerusalem at the very time when Habakkuk prophesied these words. And Daniel lived through the very things that we have just read about being described in poetic language, the the Babylonian people coming in and attacking Jerusalem. And Daniel was taken away as a captive in 605 B.C. from Jerusalem to Babylon where he lived the rest of his life some 70 years. Daniel was a prophet. Daniel chapter 2 
again in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and 11, Daniel has incredible prophecies about the coming nations. Daniel foresees the fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel foresees the rise of Greece and Alexander the Great, whom he describes in great detail defeating the Medes and the Persians. Daniel foresees the death of Alexander the Great some 200 years before it happened and how Alexander the Great's kingdom was ripped apart four ways by his four generals. Daniel even foretells the rise of the kingdom of Rome some 400 years before it happened. And all of that reminds us that God is in complete control of the nations and he knows exactly what is going to happen as he does in Habakkuk. Practical lesson number four. The timing of history is also exactly under God's control. He says, I'm doing something in your days. See, God knows exactly when this is going to happen. We'll see this again in chapter 2, verse 3. Peek ahead just a little bit to next Sunday's passage. Chapter 2, verse 3. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. See those words? The appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Those words, the appointed time. Do those sound familiar? You ever hear those anywhere else in the Bible? The appointed time? How about Ecclesiastes chapter 3? For there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under the heaven. Time to give birth. Time to die. Time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill. A time to heal. Time to tear down and a time to build up. Time to weep. Time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There is an appointed time for everything. And God is in control of the times of history. Practical lesson number five. When times are bad, when God seems silent, our response must be faith, not fear or doubt. Look now at Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. That is probably the single most important verse in the whole book of Habakkuk. And I'm looking ahead a little bit to Joshua's sermon next Sunday to quote it, but that's okay. Because the whole book of Habakkuk revolves around that verse, the righteous will live by his faith. In fact, that verse is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. That verse is used to launch the book of Romans in Romans 1.17. That verse summarizes everything that's taught in the book of Galatians. And you have this little blue card Pastor Andy prepared for us in your bulletin. 
Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. It's one of our two theme verses for the book of Habakkuk. I'll tell you about the other one in a minute. Remember Abraham? What does the scripture say about Abraham? Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith in God was considered by God as righteousness. Habakkuk says the same thing. The righteous will live by faith. During tough times, during painful trials of life, that's when all the more we need to trust God and believe God and live by faith. Sorry. It's relatively easy to trust God when life is going well. It's those times when life is hard that our faith is tested and stretched. James 1.3 The testing of your faith produces endurance. And so during these times, that's when we need to trust God and our faith becomes real and evident. It's like Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. The righteous will live by faith in these difficult and tough times. Times when God seems silent. Practical lesson number six and last. When God seems silent, during the the really painful times of life, faith is expressed not by resignation, not by hopelessness, but by joy in God. Look at the last three verses in chapter 3. Or find this little blue card and look at the other side. What does it say? Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and their fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The entire book of Habakkuk revolves around Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith, and it's all pointing to Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, and rejoicing in God, even in those difficult times. Why do we rejoice? Because God is doing something even when we can't see it. God is often doing more than we would have ever guessed or imagined or expected. And God is in complete control of history and the nations. And God knows the times, the seasons, and He has an appointed time for everything. We have these principles and these promises made even more sure than Habakkuk because we have something greater than Habakkuk that teaches the same thing and what is that? the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection think about it it was the worst of times 
the Romans had actually crucified the Messiah. He was dead and buried. And his disciples ran and hid in fear. But God was doing something greater than they had ever guessed or imagined because up from the grave He arose in a mighty triumph over His foes. Happened at the appointed time, didn't it? Galatians 4.4 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, born of a woman. The fullness of time, the appointed time. And He will come again at the appointed time. As Jesus himself says in Mark 13:33, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. And how are we to live in the meantime? It's the same thing that Jesus taught. It's the same thing that Paul taught. The righteous will live by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, the righteous will live by faith. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And we too, even in those difficult times, are called to rejoice. Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I will exalt in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the message this Sunday from Habakkuk. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you fill us with faith to believe you, to trust you during the difficult times, during the painful times, during the times when it seems like you're silent, and then fill us with joy. Not because of life itself, not because of our situation, but because of who you are. I will rejoice and I will exalt in the Lord my God what Christ has done for us. We pray this in that name, which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.